We made this. Ladies and gentlemen, it was a cold-blooded, premeditated murder. everyone and welcome back for another episode of the Red and Buried podcast. I'm Frankie. I'm Sarah. And we have another very exciting special author guest with us today. I've got to get better at intros, man, but it's all true what I just said anyway. We have the wonderful Helen Fields with us. Hi, Helen. Hello, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Yes, very well, thank you. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, let's just crack on to this bit because I'm, I'm itching to see how Sarah mispronounces most of the words in this. So uh, let's do let's do a little bio, Sarah. OK, well, the standard disclaimer, Frankie wrote this. So, Helen, if there are any issues with it, direct them to Frankie. Yeah, <laughs> standard. Yeah. Standard. So um, a former criminal and family law barrister with a background as both a prosecutor and defence counsel, it's safe to say that Helen Fields has a depth of knowledge about crime. From courts martial to care proceedings, the coroner's court to the Crown Court, Helen drew on her professional experience throughout her writing career. Twice long listed for the McIlvanny Scottish Crime Book of the Year and now translated into 22 languages, Helen's books have achieved global recognition. In 2020, her novel Perfect Kill was long listed for the Crime Writers Association Ian Fleming Steel Dagger and Perfect Remains was shortlisted for the Bronze Bat Dutch debut crime novel of the year. Helen also writes as H.S. Chandler and has released legal thriller Degrees of Guilt. Her audiobook Perfect Crime knocked Michelle Obama off the number one spot. Her first UK hardback, The Institution, comes out in March 2023. It follows renowned forensic profiler Dr. Connie Woolwine as she goes deep undercover in the world's highest security prison hospital for the criminally insane to find the kidnapped newborn baby of a recently murdered nurse. She has just five days to catch the killer, but with the walls of the institution closing in on her, will her sanity last that long? Outside of writing, Helen regularly commutes between West Sussex, USA and Scotland, she lives with her husband and three children, and as well as being a thoroughly talented and interesting person, she also has incredible hair and has a hot tub time machine. <laughs> Did Frankie nail That's it? Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> That's fabulous. Well, it's all true. I have to say, so I, I was not stalking, kind of stalking your Instagram earlier, and that's where I saw the hot tub time machine. Oh, yeah. It's amazing, isn't it's it? Amazing. I'm so excited. I know. Well, we've been doing up a, a property as an Airbnb, uh, my husband and I. And, uh, you know, we thought, you know, we'll put the hot tub in the garden. The house is on the river. Mm-hmm. Um, but everybody these days, you know, you shouldn't go away to an Airbnb and, and have it be exactly like home. Um, mm-hmm. It should be a bit more fun than so that. True. So we put the hot tub in the garden. And then before I knew it, my husband did that without me. So he got up and he went, I've got a sign. And uh, he said, it's a time machine. And, you know, by the time you put the lights on in the hot tub and the light on in the um, on the neon sign, it does look pretty cool. It's actually. incredible. Oh, my God. I want to book your Airbnb ASAP. That looks amazing. Amazing. Where is the Airbnb? So it's in Arundel. We live in Arundel, oh, but we bought a separate property. So West Sussex. So um, yes, beautiful part of the world, South yeah. Downs, really lovely. And it's, you know, the town itself ha- has a castle and it's yeah. it's a really beautiful little old town. This is it's, a great it's, uh, ad for your Airbnb. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll drop the link in the show notes. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> but we aren't actually here to talk about your Airbnb as much as I want to, because it looks so cool and I'm, I'm already itching to book it. Uh, we're actually here to talk about you and your brilliant 
books and your journey into writing, right? So you started as a criminal barrister. Yeah. And now you are a very successful internationally best-selling writer and everything. How did that happen? Well, there was, and there was a bit in between that as well. So I was at the bar for a, a long time and um, had children. I was, I always thought I wouldn't want children and that, you know, the career would be everything. And then I got to a stage where I suddenly did. And then I had three, um, which was just careless, to be honest with you. And, These things happen. Um, <laughs> I wasn't really seeing my children and I was just, you know, it was a question of every weekend was spent working, all the evenings were spent working. My husband was doing way too big a share of the, taking too big a share of the load because mm. he was working full time as well, but then having to do all the childcare. Um, and uh, it just wasn't much of a life. And I made the decision to stop, but actually I didn't want to stop working completely. I just wanted more flexibility. So I worked um, in my husband's media company for a while after that and worked as a kind of producer, client liaison, was on set, that sort of thing. Um, and then, uh, you know, potted version, had a holiday, had one of those life-changing conversations where he said, but what do you really want from life? And I said, I want to try writing a book. And he said, have six months, here's a gift. Take six months off. You don't have to do any housework. You don't have to cook. You don't have to do anything. Try writing the book. So, and I'd worked really hard. I had, you know, I had really busted my guts for a long time at the mm. bar and it was lots of hours, but he just, you know, gave that to me and wow. I tried writing and I really loved it and it just worked. It just clicked. And I think I'd been waiting a long time to do something that was really for me. Mm. That's something that just allowed me to express myself. And I'd always love writing. I love the art. I love theatre. So um, I think I've been waiting all those years just to try it. Wow. God. That must have been a huge, um, quite a scary decision to leave law and move into anything else, because it sounds like it was basically your whole life until the kids came along, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it really was. And I mean, you know, I had my first child and I had an emergency cesarean um, mm. but I'd had a case booked in that I'd been working on for 10 months and I was back in court six weeks to the day after that wow. cesarean you know because uh, it's one of those things if you don't you can do you can do a year of prep if you're not there on the first day of the hearing you don't get paid yeah um, and you're self-employed there's no maternity leave there's no sick pay so, you know, it's it's full on because there's pressure on always. No, no, nobody's got your back. You know, you're totally self-employed. Um, and the pressure just took its toll, I think. Mm. Um, but it was a big thing and I still miss it. I'm still in touch with all my mates from the bar and my old chambers. Uh, and I miss the day-to-day, -day, you know, the way it challenges you, how sharp you have to be, how focused. Um, it's an amazing career, but it is a tough one. Mm. I'm, I have to say, I, I didn't realise that um, barristers are self-employed. I didn't realise that. I don't know what I thought to be honest. I guess I never really thought about it, but that is, yeah, that must, that's in, there should be more support there. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. And there is not, I mean, you can be employed within a firm or, or with uh, within the Crown Prosecution Service, but mm. most barristers are self-employed. We work in chambers together, but you're self-employed. So there is no sick pay. There's no holiday pay. Wow. Um, if you go skiing, which is something I, I never, literally never did while I was at the bar because I was terrified because the idea that I might break a leg and not be able to drive to court for two, three months meant, you know, bankruptcy. Mm. Um, so, you know, you have to be incredibly careful. Um, but no, there's no safety net there for you at all. That's why so many women leave the bar once they've had children because you're not you know you're not going to get any sort of support with childcare or anything else and, and most women end up leaving wow that's Awful. crazy and 
also huge shout out to your husband for being husband of the year of the millennium like yeah, that's agreed. The millennium sort of thing but that's incredible wow yeah yeah and and he understood because he you know he chose to become a cameraman then start his own firm so he did the thing he loved he followed his passion and um when he was starting his business when we were young and newly married i kind of supported him financially mm. and and we've both kind of been there for each other when we needed the other person to give us that support and that break um, but he did an amazing thing and it, you know, it's been really life-changing for me and for him, because the nice thing is now as a writer, more than any other time in the past, you know, the three kids are now teenagers, but I'm there for them all the time with it. Frankly, they seem to want me more these days than they did when they were younger. <laughs> they can talk more. Yeah. <laughs> and clean more. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, I get all the time I want to support them and I still get to do, you know, funny things for my husband, like open an Airbnb, but I get to write books as well. So I am, yeah, I'm very lucky. You got balance now by the sounds of it. Yeah. Yeah. What yeah. A, like what an incredibly impressive, wholesome, well balanced relationship you have. <laughs> <laughs> Not always. <laughs> I'm only telling you about the good bit. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so if your kids are teenagers, does that mean they've read your books? They haven't. No one. No one in my family. My husband. Really. Read. <laughs> Here's the bad bits. Here you go. Here we go. So they, uh, and now uh, we're getting to it. Hasn't read any of them. <laughs> be fair to him <laughs> it's not like he reads loads of other authors and not me he doesn't yeah. read fiction right <laughs> less awkward otherwise there'd have been a divorce but um uh, but no no my children haven't they they kind of read other things to be honest with you my daughter's only 13 I wouldn't want her reading my books oh, yeah no quite dark. Um, <laughs> and my my sons are 19 and 16 at uh, 17 just turned 17 so um they're not they're not very into this kind of fiction yeah maybe later no that's I'm very not sure but I want them to I always think the books are such a window into an author's soul mm. there is absolutely no way when you're writing of hiding yourself yeah because mm-hmm. it comes through subconsciously and subliminally in every bit of dialogue you write and in every scenario your politics comes through your personal preferences you've got nowhere to hide and so I don't think I want anyone I know really well reading my books yeah I think that whole chapter you wrote about how much you hate your children would probably go down well I feel like you should include a disclaimer Frankie that you are joking oh I was joking yes sorry yeah. Yeah, okay. oh, no. that's exactly the sort of thing I say to them all the time that, that's just normal Every time they do something bad, you're like, well, that's going in the book. We're yeah. writing that down. Um, <laughs> and and speaking of a window into your soul, let's talk about the institution. So I'm getting a, quite a dark soul going on here, Helen. <laughs> Tell us. Yeah, you know, I'm not I'm not normally like this in everyday life. I'm actually a reasonably <laughs> I'm a reasonably cheerful, outgoing person. Um, but I, you know, the books are dark. I mean, the, all the books are quite dark. Yeah. I've tried writing lighter stuff. But then, you know, someone dies and, um, you know, I can't, it just becomes a crime fest, come what may. Um, uh, The institution is quite dark. I mean, the Mm. subject matter is quite dark. There are fewer dead bodies than I normally write. I think uh, I wrote a book called uh, One for Sorrow uh, that came out a couple of years ago. Mm. And I think in the course of One for Sorrow, I killed something like 30 people. Wow. So so the death (laughs) is pretty killer. (laughs) <laughs> it's actually quite low I'm quite yeah. pleased with myself <laughs> impressive your progress yeah <laughs> it is reformed but it's but it's a it's a very dark novel I mean it you know contains um the setup of it is quite mm. dark with the taking of the baby mm. 
and obviously features five serial killers instead of the the kind of normal one. Yeah, they're all locked up inside the institution. Mm. But um, you know, aside from the darkness and the horrors of it, it was a really interesting fun book to write. Yeah. yeah. Oh, definitely. It's that sort of setting I think that absolutely just intrigues you because no one hopefully will ever experience something like that in real life. But yes, yeah, very <laughs> very dark. I was um finishing it today I was at the spa day today and took it with me to finish nice. the life honestly yeah someone asked me what I was reading and I was like oh, I showed it to them and they went oh is it is it dark like, mm. <laughs> no. no it's lovely <laughs> so I copy. It. it's really nice I did say it was <laughs> like romance. It. it's great <laughs> <laughs> So how much of your your writing, you've obviously written a few books now and obviously given your background, how much of your personal experience from the bar has, or, or even stories that you've heard or worked on from the bar have, have bled their way into your writing? You know, no individual stories, just because I'm so conscious that all sorts of issues to do with ethics and confidentiality and that mm. sort of thing. But also when you start telling a story that you've heard from someone else or that is partly rooted in truth, you kind of limit your imagination. So you start to decrease the extent to which your brain kind of goes beyond that story. Whereas if you're building the blocks yourself, mm. um, it feels limitless. But there's lots and lots of people I met, or at least aspects of them. So police officers, judges, expert witnesses, um, you know, kind of lots of de defendants, not individual ones, but aspects of their personalities. Times when I felt scared or threatened or, you know, kind of really uncomfortable with people and dragging a lot of that in. Mm. But also, I mean, you know, as a criminal barrister, when you're facing a jury, you're you're not going to tell them a case like you were reading it from the papers. You build up a story. You have to take that set of facts and you have to make it um, engaging. Mm. And, you know, that you have to save some bits for the end, or there are bits you're trying to cover up, quite frankly, if you're mm. defending. You're, you know, you don't want to put an emphasis on certain bits. So you learn to find that narrative style. You learn to thread the story together. You learn to find the way for a jury to follow this story and what's gone on. And quite often they hear the same story from lots of different perspectives, which is quite interesting because then you get kind of different voices coming through. Mm -hmm. So I don't think there was a single day that was wasted for me at the bar. I think I took a lot of those skills, a lot of that understanding of um, human nature and personalities. And the one thing you do at the criminal bar is you meet a lot of people Quite a lot of them aren't very nice. Some of them are amazing and heroic. Mm. Um, and you just feed all of those personalities uh, back into the book. What I did do is whenever I really don't like someone, um, I would just give them a different name and shove them in. And <laughs> Brilliant. I'm writing about people <laughs> I don't like. Amazing. <laughs> but never with, never with the real names. Cathartic <laughs> experience. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I love that. Um, so... One of the things that we ask every author that we speak to is what you enjoy most and least about the writing process. Is there anything that immediately springs to mind for you? You know, it, I have a certain stage with every book. When I get to about 30,000 words, when I hit, I've done the opening third, where I have a really good idea of everything that's going to happen, build my characters, build my, you know, do all my world building and that sort of stuff. I hit 30,000 words and I'm dreading it because I'm watching the word count ticking up. Oh, no. And I know when I get there, 
I'm going to crash. And every time my husband's like, oh, you at 30,000 words. <laughs> you're, a bit, you're a bit grumpy. And it's really hard keeping the middle section, the middle of third of a book mm-hmm. going in terms of having enough twists and pace and that sort of thing is really hard and we all know it when we've read a book yeah. you can feel the soggy middle right mm-hmm. and and you know when you get there because you're you're you've done the exciting opening and you know that there's going to be exciting closing but you've got to get through another 30,000 words roughly and the pace has to be you know stay mm-hmm. and so that's really I hate that every single time every time <laughs> so that's awful so what I what I love about it is uh, my own little routines, which largely involves really loud rock music, <laughs> uh, cups of tea, and an endless supply of biscuits. Um, but also because my husband is very health conscious and real, he's a real gym bunny. I mean, he's you know kind of kind of crazy with the body and the fitness, and uh, so I have to hide things with him while I'm being naughty. But if I'm writing. <laughs> There's a, there's usually a few cream eggs literally oh, yeah. hidden around that. <laughs> Do an Easter egg it's hunt. A, <laughs> other bits of chocolate, and they're you know they're in my bedside table, or they're in the bathroom in my makeup. Bro, <laughs> it's terrible. So when I'm really in the midst of a book, really in the throes of it, um, I tend to stop reading other books because my head is too far in my story. And but yeah, tons and tons of loud music and um, and cream eggs. There you go. Brilliant. <laughs> I love that. Did you find that writing the institution, because obviously it's slightly different in that you dip into the different serial killers backgrounds throughout it. Did that help with the 30,000 word lull or no? <laughs> <laughs> it did. You know, it was quite a difficult book to write mm-hmm. because um, with any it's effectively a lot room mystery. I mean, although mm-hmm. you, I get to come out of a single room, but it's the same style. I haven't written one of those before and it was before and it was quite hard because I write books where people sometimes fly to different countries or they're going from here to there and different settings. And um, it was quite claustrophobic even to write it. I mean, it's supposed to feel like that when you read it, but writing it's difficult because you have to keep the audience interested. And when you're writing something happening in the same set of rooms over and over again, you know, bar going up and down the odd staircase, yeah. um, it can get very repetitive. Mm. Um, so actually coming out of it and going into the individual serial killer's backstories allowed me the space to get out of my locked room scenario mm. Basically, I was cheating. I mean, there's no magic to this. It was a big cheat. Um, but it did. It did take that away. So it wasn't so much the 30,000 word thing with the institution. It was more that the setting uh, was a big challenge to write. Yeah, I can imagine. We had Elizabeth Haynes on quite a while ago now, um, mm. and she has worked in the police force as well. On I think it was on the admin side. And she said that uh, she finds reading like police procedurals quite frustrating a lot of the time because the details are often inc- incorrect or not accurate. How often do you find yourself reading other crime fiction and thinking, well, that's not how it works in English courts and that's not right? Is, it, is that, yeah. that spoil your enjoyment at all? Or it, I, The um, court procedure thing, I mean, that's, that's a bit tricky for me. Yeah. Um, and there was a very, very big book out last year, not crime, um, actually, but it, it was a big book and I was sent a proof. And at the end, there's a courtroom scene with something in there that was so badly researched. Oh, no. Even if you'd only, even if you all you'd ever done is watch a little bit of courtroom drama on TV or something, it, it was just one of those. And it was so bad that I actually wrote to the editor and went, <laughs> 
seriously, you can't do that. You know, you've you've really got to have the right to take another look before you actually publish the book. So yeah, so I'm a bit difficult about that. I mean, little there are little bits and pieces. And I still get things wrong, you know, because I write crime novels set in Scotland, whereas my experience of um, the legal system was England. Mm. And there are some differences. Mm. And and I'm not immune to this. You know, somebody wrote recently and said, told me that I shouldn't have said said burglary. And um, uh, and they're absolutely right. Um, occasionally you use phrases and language that's as international as you can so that it doesn't matter where people pick things yeah. up. They understand right. the concepts. Um, so sometimes when people pick you up on things, it's you've made a deliberate choice to make it as international as possible. Um, other times we just get things wrong. Sure. Um, but yes, I am. Uh, yeah, I'm a bit unforgiving when it comes to courtroom stuff. Yeah. I've got to know, did they fix that book once you wrote to them? Have you checked? Do you know, I didn't. I didn't go and look. I didn't check it. <laughs> Because I figured there was just no point by that stage. Yeah. But um, it was one of those where I normally I don't feel strongly enough about these things to actually say to anyone, you know, this is a really bad mistake. But it was one of those where I just kind of thought I've got to I've got to let someone know. But that's also, the, I mean, benefiting from your knowledge and experience. That's nice to share that, I think. Yes. That should, be, should be quite. I hope they took it that way. I'm yes. sure they did. <laughs> And this ties in nicely with another question we always like to ask. Uh, and as, as somebody that, given that answer, I think this will be an interesting one. What tropes that exist in the crime genre do you, are you sick of? Do you hate at this point? Or are they all courtroom specific? Or <laughs> is there anything else that's annoying? <laughs> yeah, no, I think that, um, I mean, there are a few. What's really interesting is when I started my series with um, a character called Luke Kalanak, so my first detective series, mm -hmm. I wrote it because I went to a tutorial a writing festival where they said, please, we do want more crime, but we don't want any more alcoholic detectives, classic yeah. car driving detectives, you know, um, former drug, you know, mm -hmm. uh, kind of addict detectives. Nobody else, please, with a wife, a detective with a wife who got murdered in suspicious circumstances. It's never been resolved. And they went through or literally what you said, all those tropes. And yeah. they said, come back and come to us, submit something, but do it. I don't want any of those. <laughs> and I went away and I literally said, right, I'm going to write this amazingly good looking young detective, you know, and I'm going to find a different way to break him, but he's going to be kind yeah. of gorgeous. And, and he ends up being half French and half Scottish with a very sexy accent mm, in my head, right, at least. Yeah. I mean, he's not real. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, um, and I literally did that. I wrote something that was the complete opposite of everything. So I think it's all those things. I think it's the things that have been done too much. I think the mm. one thing that annoys me more than anything else is when people write about female characters, particularly female detectives, and they have them react in an overly emotional way. Mm. You know, if they're going to a crime scene or if yeah. they see a body or if it's their first murder and they feel, you know, and, and I met so many officers, the women police officers are amazing. You know, these are strong women. They've had to be to get through the misogyny half the time of the police force. They're amazing. So if I read a book that starts off with a female police officer feeling nervous or feeling sick or feeling scared, you know, I kind of put it down. That's yeah. it. That's what done. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting because I think that someone, I can't remember who it was, Frankie, but someone else recently gave an almost identical answer to you about the it's that male police detective alcoholic checkered past yeah <laughs> it's a bit done at this point isn't it definitely yeah, but that's an interesting flip on on, on the female side you're right because often mm. it's so much like but she's a woman and it's like well she's also doing a job so 
yeah exactly yeah exactly and, and they're so well trained yeah. they're so used to it and you know what I what I know about women police officers is that they will go so much further than male officers not to be overly emotional mm-hmm. not to show fear um not to you know not to kind of be nervous yeah. um and they make a point of it so it you have I to it I just imagine. annoys me yeah that, that you know they're that women police officers are ever portrayed like that because it's so far from the truth uh, it's so that's such a good point as well because I think as a woman even not even necessarily in the police force in any walk of life you are constantly being like, if you get the slightest bit irritated or angry about something oh she's being emotional she's being hormonal so anything you can do to avoid being labelled as such is yeah. maybe subconsciously you you do it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What fun being a woman is, isn't it great? <laughs> yeah, it really is. Mm. You spoke a bit about obviously the character there and the first your first detective character. And I'm really intrigued based on uh, based on the institution, what your answer is going to be here. Maybe it's not from this one. I suspect not from this one, actually. <laughs> I hope not, kind no. of. There is a definitely a darkness to your soul then. Uh, if you had to be a character from one of your books, who would you be and why? I think, you know, in, in my long longer running crack detective series, there's a character called um, Ava Turner, who's a detective chief inspector. And, and she's she's just fab because she is somebody who is really normal. Mm. You know, she doesn't have a huge amount of hang-ups. There's no big mystery in her past. Um, but she doesn't take any any messing. But she's got she's got that sense of humour that gets her through with her fellow officers. And she's just a fool. So when I ended up re- writing the um, Luke Kalanak, the French half uh, French half Scottish character, he starts off being slightly more emotional and irrational than her. Um, and I remember writing a scene in that first book where uh, they're in a they're in a pub together and they've just had a bit of a falling out. And um, she she gets up and leaves and you think she's left um and then reappears and he says oh great you know did you forget your coat and she went no I just went, went to the bar why are you overreacting we just had a fall out you know why are you being so weird just calm down. and and, and I liked her and, and you don't plan those things when you write it you might plan the bigger bit of the scene but you don't no one plans those brushstroke bits and mm. that is something that just happened um but it kind of told me all I needed to know about her character, not just for that book, but that, that then endured, in fact, seven books later, mm. is that she is the person who is always going to go, why are you overreacting? It's just, a, you know, we yes. had a row, so what? Um, and I like that. And I, I, I kind of fell in love with her when she did that. Um, and, and she stayed, she stayed very true to that all the way through the books. I love that she called him out on it as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> why are you so emotional? <laughs> <laughs> Um, another of our standard questions, which is probably my favourite one, is what was the last book that you read and loved? Uh, the last book I read and really loved was Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus. Um, so not crime, although there are elements of crime in there, actually. Um, uh, I quite often read outside of the crime genre, mm. especially if I'm writing, because I, I have to give my brain a break. Um, but I, I love it because Bonnie Garmus did something extraordinary, which is that she took these incredibly difficult subject areas, which is about women in the sort of 1950s-ish uh, misogyny. Um, there's actually a uh, there's a sexual assault, a very bad one. Um, you know, there's grief, there's loss. Um, and, um, you know, there's a woman who basically is an incredibly talented scientist, incredibly bright, who ends up having to present a cooking programme instead of a science programme because, you know, 
women didn't do science back then. So, yes. so what she does is she takes this cookery program that's on TV in her little apron and she's told to wear high heels and all this rubbish. And instead of, instead of going, uh, now pouring the cooking fat, she said, now we're pouring this oil, it's lipids and the pH is this. And, and the whole premise is, is that she teaches women chemistry and science through this cooking show, but actually it's about something, it's about misogyny. And it covers these really, really difficult subjects that are really upsetting. And people still go, oh, it's such a fun book. And it's such a credit to the writer that no one came away feeling depressed or upset or in that, the brilliance of Margaret Atwood, but it's not, she covers some of the same subjects as Margaret Atwood, but the way you come away from it is you kind of go, that was really nice to read (laughs) because you never feel it all the way through. She never lets you get bogged down in that. And you come out kind of enlightened, but in a way that's just clever. Mm. It's so hard. It's the hardest thing to do to write really serious things with a light touch. Mm. And for the life of me, if I ever write a book as good as that, I would be very pleased with myself. Indeed, Bonnie Garmus is an amazing author. Sounds amazing. I'm also interested, actually, hearing you speak about that. Did you used to read a lot when you were working in law? I can't imagine you had a huge amount of time. No, I, and I kind of regret it. I think once in a while. So I did that thing where you'd go on holiday and grab a book at the airport. Yeah. But I was reading, I don't know, stacks of paper. So you'd get given yeah. a brief on a Friday for Monday and it would be that. It's just a pile of A4 paper. Yeah. So my reading speed was extraordinary because you had to read and sometimes I'd get to court and I'd have six you know smaller but cases that I had to read at court go in and do mm. wow. um, and so my reading speed was ridiculous but I never ever had the time or the energy mm. just the bandwidth you mm. know the idea when I was reading that much the idea of reading for pleasure yeah you know that was absolutely not um and it was much more about you know, kind of doing other things, which would be going for a walk, heading outside, yeah, spending moving. time with my poor husband, yeah. you know, that sort of thing. So no, I spent, you know, almost 15 years where unless I was on holiday, yeah, I didn't, I didn't read. And for someone I've, I've loved books my whole life, you know, I kind of, there's a tiny bit of me that feels a bit resentful of having such a massive period of time where I didn't, where I didn't read. Yeah, but it's, it was just a necessary evil. Well, better late than never. And you're, you're making up for it now. So Definitely. that matters. And I'm really curious as well with the writing process for you. We've touched on it a bit, but we often have uh, writers who come on and talk about whether they're a planner or a pantser, whether they it's character first and then location and setting or setting and then character. Do you do you have a, a, an approach when you write that differs or you know it's a funny thing I am um, I'm definitely a pantser not a planner I kind of know how things are going to start and uh I don't know how they're going to end but I know I usually know who will still be alive at the end <laughs> that's what my brain does because you've killed off all the people you don't like from course but I do have a really good idea of place and setting And I have a good idea of characters. So I I see it very visually. So um, the intricacies of plot, twists, things like that, dialogue, that all happens as I go along. If I'm very lucky, they will tie up at the end. Otherwise, it's just my editor's problem and they've got to do it with (laughs) editors at all. Um, But yes, a really good idea of the world that I'm going into. Um, An incredibly good idea of how it feels inside my characters' heads. So that I've definitely got. And particularly with my um, antagonist, so whoever my bad guy is, 
I really know how it feels to be inside their brain. Mm. Yeah, so I build world and character and I know all of that before and I know how it's going to open. And the rest of it is um, a complete mystery to me still. Even when I finish the book and I go back and think, oh, that, that was great. How should I do that? And it's still like, I don't know. It just happened as I, happened as I went along. And I think that's true for a lot of mm. authors, you know. The planners, the people who can go do that in advance and have their board with everything set out, they are, they're, they're quite, they're a rare breed, really. Yeah, it's I, I, it's really interesting. So we, we've had a, a variety of writers on and also I've just, from meeting various writers in, in the last few months and things and seeing how different, like I know some that have spreadsheets that are fully populated with every detail and it's yeah. astounding. But I guess whatever works for you works for you. But I do wonder if you, with the planning, a lot of the spontaneity maybe comes out of it or those like going down a, a rabbit hole that you wouldn't expect with a character and things yeah. like that. Hopefully yeah, still it's room. quite nice. When, when you don't plan, you allow the space for things to just happen and occur to you. Mm. Um, it's kind of scary because you can start the day thinking, I have no idea. I'm on chapter 15, don't know what's <laughs> going to happen next. Um, but I think actually when you um, don't plan too carefully, your subconscious is building a lot of it in advance. Mm. I think we think we're not planning when our brain really is. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think all of us who say we're pantsers, frankly, are just, you know, we're slightly lazy and we let our imagination <laughs> go one out. You've planned your pants, you know, what you're yeah. going to wear. Yeah, yes. that makes sense. <laughs> They'll be there at the end. Yeah. <laughs> or will they? But... Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? That's half the mystery. <laughs> and also, I mean, we've read your bio a lot, obviously, and also your um, your lovely uh, publicity team sent over some, you know, background things and bits of work. And they made a really interesting point in that email, so basically to speak to you about the prevalence of true crime and the popularity of crime in general in our society at the moment yeah. and I just I guess from somebody that's on both sides of the of it you know you've, you've been in the weeds with the real real you know criminals and victims and on the flip side you know writing fiction around it like what are your thoughts on this the well it's always I think there's always been a morbid interest in the darker things in society right Victorian you know the Victorian yeah. are very dark they used to go to public hangings and things like that back in the day mm -hmm. But why do you think now in particular, like every week there's a new Netflix documentary on yeah. a serial killer? Why do you think that's all of a sudden so prevalent? You know, we just can't get enough of it, can we? <laughs> it's a really bizarre thing. And the true crime, you know, um, sort of podcasts and serials and documentaries um, has been extraordinary. There was a bit of a rise in them after Mindhunter came out. Yeah. Um, which was really interesting because it, when you, uh, to clever thing to sort of slightly fictionalize something real that happened. Um, and that kind of spawned a, a, an absolute mass of true crime stuff on, on the television and on podcasts. But the truth is, we're interested in darkness, whether it's, um, you know, horror movies or thrillers, novels, whether it's whatever the format is. And I think we trace this back to campfires. So, uh, you know, before we had houses, before we had homes, the, the people that came before us sat around fires and they told stories and they, if they couldn't tell them, they, you know, drew pictures on cave walls. Um, but they would sit around and their only entertainment was stories, but they weren't all sitting around going, I had a lovely day hunting that buffalo. <laughs> you know, the, the stories are supposed to thrill and entertain. And whenever you talk about entertaining, you naturally build in suspense. Whenever you're talking about suspense, you're talking about shocks and surprises. Mm -hmm. And this is why crime fiction works, because we're all just telling an extended story around a campfire. Um, why is it about darkness? It's because it's the bit of uh, all of us that's hidden. Mm. 
So the bit that we see of everyone is the bit that we let everyone see, which is the happiest bit where you go, well, how are you? You go, fine. You don't go, how are you? I just killed. (laughs) You know, you don't do that. So we hide it, right? It's really interesting about humans. And and you look at social media and you go, you, you know, go, oh, I had the best day. Look at me. I've been shopping. Look at my bags. You know, you don't go, oh, God, you know, look at the floor because um, the dog threw up all over it. You know, it's and so even on a very, very superficial level, we present happiness and we hide darkness, mm. which means when you take that to an extreme you really don't know what's going on inside human beings. You don't know what's going on in, in your neighbor's house. Um, you know, you don't know what's going on with that person at work. Um, and that's scary. What we don't know is the scary thing. And it's no different than, you know, kids kind of wondering what's under the bed. Because as soon as we can't see something, our imagination runs riot. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that uh, we're fascinated by, by the darkness in people because for most of us, we don't know how they can feel and think and do those things. And we want to understand, um, you know, yeah. so, so it's a combination of things. Um, but, but mostly it's because, you know, we're all, we all are to an extent troubled people inside in our in our private selves that was quite a comforting explanation actually Mm. because it's (laughs) it's that thing of you always feel a little bit guilty right being interested in true crime in particular because you know it's like this is about people who've gone through some really awful things but at the end of the day it is fascinating in an awful way yeah it's not it's nice to have an explanation for it that doesn't make me just feel like a terrible person to be honest (laughs) you are still a terrible person yeah but not because of that no not because of that the other stuff yeah I also, I also really curious as you are um, you know an expert and I want to pick your brain on this because I always find it really fascinating when say I mean it doesn't happen that often thankfully when a serial killer is caught for example and the press and all the neighbors they speak to the neighbors they speak to people that know them and they go oh I didn't he was a really nice quiet guy like I would never have seen this coming how much can people hide their true darkness from those around them or are there there red flags that maybe people just don't see I think we switch off from them but but some very prevalent killers in in British history have had wives who genuinely say they really didn't know they just didn't know and I think I wonder if when you get too close to a person you almost deliberately shut your eyes to the minutiae of their life and their moods Um, or you're just pleased that you're not having to deal with them so if they take you know that bit of their temper out of the house Mm. as long as you don't have to deal with it that's fine I think quite often that's what we're really talking about let me there's a really good example that I have that when I was I was uh, 18 and working uh, in an in an office, and this guy who was a temporary worker, um, and I was just there for the summer holidays, would come in and go out. He wasn't offensive. He was a kind of in his fifties, um, seemed like a perfectly okay guy. You know, just came in, got on his work, very mousy. And um, uh, we sat in, sat there one day, and the girl across the desk had some polos, and she turned around and she took one for herself, but she offered one to everyone else, and she put them across the desk and said, "Would you like a polo?" And he stood up and he put back his fist and he hit her in the face so hard he he destroyed her face. Oh my god! The the level of um, brutality and violence and force was was really shocking. And that's the first time I'd seen re- really close up seen violence. And then he stopped and he ran. Uh, you know, and we called an ambulance. We Whoa. called the police, and that's what happened. But I and, and I I think about that quite often because I think did he just snap? Mm. Or was that somebody who his wife has been nagging him for the last year about having bad breath and he thought the polo thing was just an mm. extension of that, you know? Yeah. Was she suggesting he had bad breath? Was it an oversensitivity? 
did she remind him of someone? You know, we always, we have this, we have this darkness. And so, you know, you really don't know. You meet people and you think, uh, the problem is we're all a bit flippant, aren't we? You think, oh, you know, I'm going to put him into a pigeonhole. He's in his 50s. He's kind of slightly mousy. He's slightly boring. We're in a pensions company. You know, he hasn't got a, you know, hasn't got a solid job. The seats, you know, he's fine. He's okay. I don't need to pay any attention to him. That's the dangerous bit. As soon as you decide you know someone, yeah. whether it's your neighbor or anyone else, you know, that's when things get dangerous. And we're all a bit complacent about that. But, you know, we have to understand that serial killers or somebody who just kills one person or, you know, people who do terrible things, they have whole lives. They go to supermarkets, they do their washing, they have to, you know, kind of pay their council tax bill. They have families, they have previous relationships, they have pets who they might be lovely to. They're, none of them are just this one-dimensional cardboard cutout of a killer. And that's what we forget. We forget that these people have have all these lives and all these experiences. And for 99.9% of it, they will have been completely normal. You know, it's the, it's that one little bit um, that you don't see. So, you know, be careful who you sit next to on the bus. Wow. Yeah. Or at work. That took a slightly darker turn than I, I meant. I know. So sorry. <laughs> it's good. It's fascinating. Yeah. Um, and it's fine because Frankie's going to take it even darker now. With my <sighs> Sarah, you have to do it one day. <laughs> you did it so well. Come on. Well, thank you. On that dark note, and speaking of uh, hidden deaths to people and terrible things that people have done, I'm afraid I have some terrible news for you, Helen. And actually, you have committed a crime so dark, so heinous, so brutal in its uh, in its delivery that, unfortunately, you have been sentenced to death. <laughs> I know. What do you think you've done out of interest? If you were going to go down for horrendous crime, what horrendous crime do you think you've committed out of interest? Oh, that's a mean question. Yes. <laughs> we've had some great answers in the past real mix so i'm curious yeah well um you know what i have i spend quite a lot of my time this is way too revealing this isn't this do you know that this is a terrible question because you either say something flippant or you're mm. actually going to about to reveal something mm. um so i do when i'm really cross with people and you know, and it's it's often people who have done things like upset one of my kids or something like that. You know, when when Mummy Tiger comes out to play, the way I deal with it um, is I sit very quietly, or I'm in the bathroom in bed, and I I plan how I would kill them. <laughs> <laughs> and let me just let me just say, I've never hurt physically hurt anyone in no. my life, sure, sure, and I never will, and I never would. But the way I process my anger and my fury. I have to find somewhere to put it. Otherwise, I'm in really bad mood and yeah. I can't, I find that difficult. And so what I do is I very meticulously <laughs> plan how I would kill them. Brilliant. Uh, right down to my escape routes, not leaving, not Perfect. leaving forensic traces, that sort of thing. And that's how I do. So I have, I would be sentenced to death for meticulously and carefully planning the deaths, the murders of several people known to me. Okay, so you didn't actually kill them, but somebody found your plans. Conspiracy. <laughs> like, this is enough. Conspiracy to commit murder. She's a threat of society to society, and she must be. She must be killed <laughs> just in case she snaps. Clear and present danger. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wow. Wow. Your plans must have been really gruesome to get the death penalty. <laughs> 
But here we are. Okay. And also, I appreciate asking you this question because you know very well we don't have the death penalty in this country. But we have, we've said to recent authors that we've bought it back just for you because it's such a danger. (laughs) So too risky to keep you around. Okay. So that's the bad news. But the good news is to balance it out, make it slightly less uh, painful, is we're going to make you the death row meal of your dreams. So, and it can be anything from any time for anywhere specific that you've eaten in the past or anyone that you can get anyone to make it for you that you want. It doesn't have to be me and Sarah in the kitchen. So what would you, (laughs) what would you like? What would your order be? Uh, You know, um, it would probably be something really, really quite simple. Hmm. And, and this is not, this is very unsophisticated. I'm a very unsophisticated person. You hide cream eggs in your makeup bag. I think we've set. But great British breakfast oh big, nice. that's a good really one big fry up breakfast all the trimmings giant mug of tea which i would rather have any day over champagne or anything else i'm a very simple girl i would I, you know i'd much rather have a big cup of tea um so really really honestly if i've got to go to my end mm-hmm. i want you know i want the works i want two types of eggs oh, i want loads and loads of hot buttered toasts yeah. i want you know sausages really crispy bacon mm. baked beans um, hash browns uh, i want absolutely everything brown sauce so you said two types of eggs which types of eggs are we talking uh, poached and scrambled oh i think you say cream <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> we'll hide one in your cell for you and i'd like a deep fried cream egg on the side perfect yeah. accompaniment instead of fried bread you can have a fr- deep fried cream egg yeah, yeah. Wow. Have both. That's, fine. that's a good answer we've not had that one before no i've never thought first. about it oh, it's, like it's the simple shout. things in life though isn't it i yeah. you know i do love going to a nice restaurant and i love, love great food but at the end of the day sunday about 11 o'clock when you mm. finally had a lie-in and you kind of get up with my husband and the kids are kind of, you know, doing their own thing. We're kind of like, do you know what? <laughs> Let the bacon out. There yes. we go. God, yeah. that's so true. It's, it's There's nothing more satisfying than a really good fry up, is there? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. Great answer. Great. Well, there you go. Okay, we'll make you that. That's fine. That's been provided for you. But um, I'm afraid you are unfortunately now being sentenced to death so that's that's happened i'm sorry you are now dead oh i thought you were going to ask me i I honestly was thinking are you going to tell me i've got a range of different choices for how i get killed you can if you like choose one (laughs) you want to pick yeah we we do get quite dark i mean we can definitely discuss if you have a preference So it's a step too far. Okay, we'll just say it was very quick, very painless, and it was all it went very smoothly. There were no problems. Thank you. Thank you. I'm sorry about it. I'm still sorry, but yes. Okay, but as your final gift, you are allowed to be buried with one book of your choice. What book are you being buried with? Oh, it's far from the Madden crowd. Oh, nice one. Yeah. Good pick. It's that book. Um, and I think it. It was one of the first books that I read that where I really understood the breathtaking nature of the sort of prose that is uh, that transports you, mm. completely transports you, yeah. you know, in the most extraordinary way. And I feel the same about Tolkien, mm-hmm. which is that it, it just carries you to a completely different place and time. 
But uh, I called my first um, son Gabriel uh, after Gabriel Oak in Far From the Madding Crowd. So it affected me and I just I've carried it with me through my whole life that my love of those characters and uh, his world building, which was just extraordinary. Um, Yes. So that's my very cheerful (laughs) coffin book. Thank you. Well, at least it's one that will bring you comfort and on the other side, wherever that may be. It will. It will. <laughs> we don't like to presume on the <laughs> podcast. Where no, I mean, I'm guessing after all the planning people's murders, I'll be going downstairs rather than upstairs. Well, so, at you least know. it's warm. Yeah. So. <laughs> yes, warm. And the heating bills are low. There yes. you go. That's yeah. the living crisis. Yeah, we think yeah. we can get. <laughs> Wow. Wow. Helen, this has been so much fun. Yeah, <laughs> thank, thank you. you. Thank you. How much fun. That was brilliant. Really appreciate it. Where can people find you on social media to follow you for, for hot tub pictures and more? Oh, oh, honestly, almost everywhere. I'm really annoyingly present. That's good. So, yes. Twitter, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that sort of thing. TikTok yet? Or You know what? My 19-year-old son has started me a TikTok account, which is terrifying. And I said, that's lovely, darling. You do it all. And I'm just going to say, well done. So he does lots of lovely videos for me. So don't look on TikTok because I have no idea what he's put there. I'm going to look on TikTok right after this. (laughs) Fantastic. Definitely. And Frankie, where can people find us on social media? Sarah does this because, uh, Helen, for everyone listening is rolling their eyes already, but Sarah doesn't know the name of this podcast. There's been multiple times where she's called it Dead and Buried. Um, um, <laughs> you've been doing it for over a year and you know, multiple episodes, but it's fine. Uh, they can find us, Sarah, at Red and Buried Podcast on all the social channels as well. And just to say, so the institution is out. When is it out in March? 2nd of March, I think, is the answer. Very exciting. So Not everyone long. go and order your copy right now. And also um, email us at redandburypodcast at gmail.com if you have any ideas for other authors that we should speak to, or if you have a preference for how you're put to death, just send us an email and we can talk about <laughs> it. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, so thank you. It's been an thank absolute you. pleasure. So much fun. And hopefully you'll come back in the future after your next book. Absolutely. I'd love to. What lovely it'd be. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back very soon with another episode. So see you then. Bye. Hey guys, my name is Tony Black, podcaster and author, and I'm here to tell you about Partisan, a podcast about politics and history in film and entertainment. I'll be joined by guests as we discuss films, TV shows, and maybe a little bit more, examining political and historical topics, such as how Elvis intersects with black cultural history. In Lerman's film, the idea of the black characters are maybe kind of, they're used as catalysts to basically move Elvis forward in his career. I think that that's how I saw it. The rise and fall of Richard Nixon. It seems to be historians seem to agree with this, is that he was the first president that really capitalized on the evangelical vote and politicized them. The disturbing class satire in society and much, much more. Partisan is free to download on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your podcast app of choice. And you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Pod. I hope you'll vote with your feet and join us on the journey.